and welcome to another edition of the Capiche Filmcast. Stephen Barry here for another episode of the Bond Daft Project. My Bond aficionados, Francis Murphy. Yo, yo, yo. Steve McCall. A very good evening to you all. And Gordon Webster. Good evening, Mr. Barry. Good evening to you all. This is a fine Sunday evening in lockdown, of course. COVID-19 still uh, keeping us away from doing it in person. We're uh, being so- social responsible and keeping our distance for Skype. We're here, of course, for the 18th Bond film, Tomorrow Never Dies. <laughs> uh, Pierce Brosnan's second film uh, released in 1997 this was the very first film that I saw as a as a, a new Bond fan this was the first film I was aware of uh, when, of the Bond franchise that I actually could anticipate um, so I'm looking forward to that but first let's do a quick catch up how are we doing, how is lockdown treating us in the, I don't know, 58th week that we're, we've been into now Fran, we'll start with you as usual um, well, as usual, I, I always have my update before we go into a live recording, so I'll condense it a little bit. Um, that's, apart from everybody living around me going insane all at the same time um, and being arrested, uh, it's been fairly all right. I, I did have a bit of a loopy moment myself in the midst of all that madness, but uh, what can you do? That's that. I'll yeah. leave it at that. Yeah. I love that. So, like, we've just been told a story. We won't go into it because it will take a while, but it's like, quite a good story about essentially a fracas with neighbours, police involved, all that. And it, out of context for the, the for our listener, that we'll just they be left wondering what the hell happened? What's been going on in your life? Yeah, I like that. Yeah, but you got to keep the mystery up when it comes to the the public, you know. Um, but, but I will say that I was not involved in any of that. I was an observer. I was yeah. just observing and being yeah. kept awake at night. <laughs> Steve, how you been? You've still been working? How's that been? Yeah, it's kind of going, I think, as most people are as we get into week eight, I'm in badly need of a haircut. And due to the amount of cleaning and sanitizing that I'm doing at work, my blood is currently about 80% sanitizing gel. Um, but it's it's been all right. I've, I've had a bit of, I've, I've not worked much this week, so I've had a bit of TV time. I have been mostly binging the BBC TV series Spooks, which is one of the greatest television series of all time. And the BBC have gone and put all 10 series on the iPlayer. So if you're into Spies and Demi 5 and stuff like that, brilliant series, uh, well worth watching. Um, <clears throat> I've also come up with a, a, a handy little um, life hack, if you wish, because obviously it's been about, what, two, three months since I last saw you guys. And, you know, I'm starting to miss you all. So one thing I did discover also on the iPlayer, as you guys know, but the people listening might not, our very own double-O agent Gordon Webster has appeared in a television show called Inside Central Station. So what I've discovered is episode one of that, just watch about sort of five, six minutes in, pause the screen when uh, Mr. Webster appears on the screen, and then put on a Bond film. And it's just like having Gordon <laughs> sitting next to you. And I feel so much more... Like yeah. I'm back with you guys. <laughs> That's Thanks. Thanks for that, Steve. Thanks very much. Yeah. I actually suggested for the, the location of the interview, going to a place kind of mysteriously looking. You'll see me coming out, going under that bridge and that. And I, I was thinking like Trevelyan coming out of the shadows in Statue Park, something like that. Wearing my black, of course. 
Everything you do is with Bond in mind. It's amazing. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't even going to bring all that up, but seeing as Steve got the ball rolling, but yeah. Um, They're too humble. Yeah, it was good, man. That was, that was ages ago, last September it was. Uh, it was fun. Uh, my, my first taste to really um, real Celebr- broadcast. Another, yeah. <laughs> Who knows what could happen? Who knows? It was surreal watching you. It was fantastic. It was great. I think, yeah. I think Anne loved it. She was like, oh, look, oh, that's amazing. <laughs> You've got a fan. People are going to know now. I was trying to keep it quiet. I was I, I was with my hood up. like um, I was like, look, Skywalker or something in Return of the Jedi, and they told me to take off. Also, <laughs> I wasn't really completely at ease doing it because I was doing it with um, a couple of, there was the cameraman and there was the, the lady producer, and uh, she was asking me questions and I was answering them to the camera. But she told me not to look at her, um, not to look in the camera lens either. I was to look at the, the cameraman, like look into his eyes. And I, I was talking, talking for over five minutes. And it felt so weird. It just, I just felt so uncomfortable staring into this guy's face and I wasn't even answering him. And eventually she's like, no, look, if, you, if that's awkward for you, just look at that completely empty space over his shoulder. So I started looking in this space and it still felt weird. So if I look kind of not completely comfortable, then that's probably why they edited it the way they did. But that's all right, yeah. It was an HD, so you can see me in glorious HD until they take off the iPlayer. That's fantastic. Well, no, it was awesome, man. Really, really good stuff. It was it was fun to watch. Uh, how else? How, how have you been, uh, despite being a, a TV star? Ah, it's been pretty um, ordinary apart from that. Just I, most days, um, it's just repeat, repeat. Always just yeah. looking forward to the weekends, getting to chill out a bit more, still getting a few movies in. You know, I watched, actually, the other night, I watched another Brosnan film, and he played a baddie. It's called Butterfly in a Wheel. I don't know if, And Gerard Butler's in it as well. It was kind of strange. It was, it was electrifying and full of suspense, but I feel Brosnan was a bit miscast. He played a, a bad guy, a bit of a psycho, but um, it, it was it was what was I going to say? Full of real twists. It was it was quite a clever film in a lot of ways, but it was, it was interesting to see him in that kind of role a few years after Die Another Day. Uh, I can't say I've seen a lot of post Bond Brosnan stuff. Now I think about it, it really is. Oh, mostly- and, oh, sorry. Here's the thing. Um, there's you'll probably guess this early on, but there's two actors in that film. One of them obviously been Brosnan. There's two actors that are both in Tomorrow Never Dies as well. Uh, well, one you've just met, you mentioned about a minute ago that I spotted on Wikipedia. I, I don't remember him being in, so he must be a really small part. Um, uh, okay, yeah, so pretty much been catching the films then. Any other films you want to quickly mention you've, you've watched over lockdown? Good. Uh, um, I don't know. I, 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 was that a general question? Hi, let's make it general. Um, I was Well, I was watching uh, a series called Lilyhammer. Oh, God, yeah, I know. <laughs> Which I've really enjoyed, which is uh, the guy who plays uh, it's Steve. What's his name? Steve. Van, I think it's Van Zant. Uh, so, have, have you guys seen The Sopranos? Yeah, you have. Big fan. Right. So, essentially, um, what's his name? Is it Sil? Is the character? Yeah, yeah. Sil, Silvio Dante. Yeah. Yeah. So, Lily Hammer. no less. Yeah. Yeah. So, like. Lilyhammer feels I've I've heard from Fran and from a couple of reviews I've read that essentially like he went on to live in this other life 
uh, and it's like about what is it? Is it essentially a gangster living with Norwegians or something? Uh, he moves to Norway, and then he starts setting up his life there again. But um, it's absolutely hilarious. And if you like Silvio Dante's character, he's playing the same guy with the same outfits, the same hair, the same mannerism, like everything about him. The thing about this, the Sills character is that he's such a caricature that it's hilarious and amongst what is kind of caricatured characters like the Sopranos, you know, it's Italian-American gangsters, the mafia, but they do, the Sopranos is all about giving them a bit more three dimensions and seeing other aspects of their life, but Sill is the only one that's like straight out of like... Uh, Goodfellas or something like that. <laughs> like he doesn't look as if he he fits with the rest. He's so he's such a caricature, and he, and he doesn't say anything. Like like the, there's one point where Tony Soprano says to him, "Do you think this guy's got a problem with women?" And and Dante's response, Silvio Dante just goes, "Well, I don't know. I mean, he he beat one to death. You know, like uh, uh, that's the way he talked. It's ridiculous." Uh, yeah. So let's uh, quickly, Gordon. Did you catch any films? Well, I would also plug the series, uh, what's it called? I've been watching a lot of it, The Blacklist. I may have mentioned that before with James Spader. Oh, he's Megan a great Boone. actor. Uh, it's a great series, yeah. It's electrifying. Uh, it reminds me of 24 a bit, which I'm a, a big fan of. Uh, I watched watched another one of those Jesse Stone films, which are more or less with like TV series, but they're actually films per se, which obviously have got the latest review up on Capiche uh, yeah. online. For that, uh, um, lovely segue, Gordon. Yeah. I, so I was going to say, we've now got a website. We can uh, talk about that. We uh, Previously, I had created a sort of blog with uh, links to the podcast and the odd game and film review um, over the last couple of years. We've kind of uh, smartened it up. We've got... we. Uh, soft launched we could maybe say uh, we've, the podcasts are obviously now there The and we've also got Gordon has contributed as a writer uh, we've got a couple of reviews fantastic there so yeah uh, online. if any you can search for it now and uh, we've also got the Facebook and Twitter uh, pages as well so if you want to try and reach out to us on that we're there and we're all the links go to that as well we've also got the podcast on soundcloud on apple podcasts spotify and uh, all your other main uh, audio podcast services and apps so yeah it's been pretty awesome it's uh, the rebranding fran thank you again for for helping with that that was fantastic no problem it was uh it was as the doctor might say probably happening during a manic episode that that's a joke, by the way. No, um, uh, no, it was it was it was kind of a. It had it was one of those things where you had to do all uh, in order to get it all done. You had to do it all at the same time, quite you know, like really focused. And now that that's done, it's stepping back and and you know letting people know that it's there, isn't it? And starting yeah. to you know contribute articles to it in a more natural way. Um, I mean, obviously, I mean I'm. I, I, we're very early on in this whole thing, um, yeah, exactly. but it would be it would be nice to see it in years down the line if if people were wanting to write or wanting to talk in the forums or had any requests for things for us to talk about or just wanted to chat about stuff. Um, that all those facilities are there. Yeah, we've got a website for any requests as well. If anyone happens to want to send any questions to capiche.online at outlook.com um, currently that's the, that's the email address we're using uh, yeah so I think I'll finish up 
we have a website. Visit the website. And it's a work in progress, but we are nearly there. And if you want to email us, uh, join the forums and set up your profile as well. You can log in and chat and everything. It's like a proper official website. It's fantastic. Uh, so, yeah, more to come on that as well. We've got, we're planning on loads of different features and reviews. So pretty exciting stuff. And let's now move on to the film at hand Tomorrow Never Dies uh, yeah this is uh, this film obviously came out after the massive success of Goldeneye and so there was a bit of pressure on the studio I think that they um, they, they could feel it this time Goldeneye was not just a commercial success but critically reviewed it was one of the the biggest return to forms for this franchise and even with the then popularity of the game which came out in 1987 which sort of prolonged that success they had a bit of a, they had that kind of pressure going into it this time. I think that's the first time because it's been a while. I would say that they've had that since maybe the Connery years, where they've had a, a film that really they had to try and beat because it was so big. Maybe Spy Who Loved Me, maybe did it to to Moonraker. Gordon, what's your thoughts with that? Yeah, it's kind of like a band doing their huge breakthrough album, and then the pressure from the record company to have a very almost immediate big follow-up one with a little time to do it. I think it was quite a troubled production and there was a lot yeah. of script rewrites. Even when the day they started filming Tomorrow Never Dies, the script wasn't finished. I think it was Brosnan was one of the people who said that. And uh, they they used different locations around the world. They actually, interestingly, for the, the scenes which are meant, I think they're meant to be in Vietnam or actually filmed in Thailand, but it's around the same group of islands where Scaramanga's Island was in Man with the Golden Gun. And they, yeah, for I think some of the street scenes later on, Thailand doubled as Vietnam, and there was some studio stuff as well. They actually actually used a few real life Royal Navy warships, as you would expect, and some yeah. stuff filmed in England. But it was for me. It's a, I'm, what I'm interested in is, I mean, Goldeneye always been my number one in the the Brosnan catalog. And to me, I've still not decided. I want to, after doing this and the world's not enough, to decide is it this, is it the world's not enough? I'm not quite sure what my second one is. I've always found that Tomorrow Never Dies is the most exhilarating one, but I think the world's not enough maybe is a better story. So I don't know. I'm I'm interested to decide that for myself. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat. Those two I grouped together um, as... At the time, liking them, and and especially, I always remembered liking The World Is Not Enough more than Tomorrow Never Dies. Um, so I'm intrigued. It's been so long since I have seen this film. And it was the first film I had seen in the cinema, as I mentioned before. This was the first film that I went into with anticipation of what to expect from a Bond film. I didn't know about Bond before I watched Goldeneye. Um, but yeah, this one, reading the re- the, the research on this one, it, it, there was a lot of fallouts. This is the first time, and this is after the death of Cubby Broccoli. This is the first film. He died, was it in 90, was it in 97 or was it 95? Right after Goldeneye was out? I think it must have been 95 or 96. And you'll see the yeah. film's actually dedicated Cubby. And also it's the one film directed by Roger Spottiswood. There's, I mean, I think most directors tend to do at least more than one film. You look at the likes of Sam Mendes in recent years, John Glenn did about five, but Spottiswood just did this, the one. Martin did Campbell they, even came back after Goldeneye. Like he, he later came back. And also this film, I think there was, like what we spoke about Licence to Kill, there was a lot of major 
competition. Not necessarily the same same genre, but Titanic was a huge film and it was it was premiered, I think, in the same days. Tomorrow Never Dies. Yeah, that was obviously one of the biggest films. Was that the biggest film for the when that came out, that was like one of the most successful films. I think it may well have been I think it may well actually have been the yeah, the, the so, most successful because that's James Cameron, isn't it? Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Pete, the, yeah. There was there was a thing that James Cameron was trying to beat Titanic later on with Avatar. Like he was yeah. trying to beat his own success, and I think someone else, whenever someone beat Titanic's numbers, he would send them a, a thing, like a, a message, you know? Well, by this point, sorry, Peter Lamont had become well established as the production designer for the Bond films. I, I'm, I'm not sure if he did Goldeneye, but he'd certainly done quite a few, and he'd essentially he'd really made it his own the way Ken Adam did but he was involved in Titanic so I would imagine he was not involved in this but I'll go and check that yeah um, the sort of back and forth between Spottiswood and I think Bruce Fairstein the writer and then even um, Michael Wilson and Barbara Broccoli there was all sorts of disagreements with this film this is the one as well as that you had I think Brosnan and Terry Terry Hatcher uh, yeah. Having have they had disagreements? They did not get on. Uh, she was a bit of a diva, wasn't she at the time? It since it since came out from I think between the cast of um, Desperate Housewives. I think there was kind of like an agreed sort of outcome from the multiple cast members that she was quite difficult to work with. That sort of was revealed after the show ended or whatever. Um, so there's a wee bit of a. But I think actually reading into the Brosnan thing, he he took issue with Terry Hatcher being late for one of their scenes, and take sort of taking her to task for it, saying she was unprofessional or whatever. And and then I think she then told him I'm pregnant and it was something to do with that. I think he found out maybe after it, so he apologised to her. So it might not be as big a deal, or it might have been sort of just miscommunication or whatever. I think um, possibly in that case, but I think she she's had a reputation. Like she obviously got a big break on the Superman TV show years ago, well, and then was... I always felt with Superman, she like her reputation there was kind of all right, and then she went on to do movies, and then it was after that she started to get that reputation. I think whatever happened on Tomorrow Never Dies might have been a misunderstanding, to be honest, because I think it was later on when she was a bigger name that can happen to some actors, you know, when they they get clout, they get uh, recognised, they can get an attitude, but. Yeah, I reckon it was probably just, you know, that I think yeah. it might have just been that hope that she was late and that she was pregnant and that there's water under the bridge for her and Piers Brosnan. Reading a couple of the things, just very quickly, I don't want to take this preamble too long. Uh, a couple of things I noticed as well, it's problematic would be the word to use, is with the casting of, I think they were looking at a different actress for uh, Terry Hatcher's character prior to deciding to go with Terry Hatcher. Uh, I'm just going to get her name. Sela Sela Ward had auditioned for the role, but she lost out apparently because they said she'd be perfect, but if she was seven years younger. So, uh, (laughs) yeah, so they went for Terry Hatcher. Uh, Now, that obviously wouldn't fly now, I don't think, um, because, you know, that's, I mean, 1997, we're obviously still talking about a time where female characters were sort of valued as you need to be younger 
but it didn't matter that if Roger Moore was 58 as your lead, uh, which is problematic. As But yeah, so I think Monica Bellucci as well didn't get it. Uh, and actually Brosnan had remarked at the time they, they should have chose her. Um, he couldn't believe it when she got knocked back. But they actually fixed that. She ended up getting a role in Spectre, I suppose, years later. Well, that kind of like, yeah, I mean, I, that goes against my view on... Um, you know, yeah, you should take someone on for their acting chops, you know. Now, obviously, there's going to be a limit to what someone can physically look like to fit a character, like, you know, uh, of any kind. I mean, you couldn't have, like, an 85-year-old man playing Bond. Do you know what I mean? Like, you couldn't you couldn't have, like, a, you know, a baby playing the Bond girl. Do you know what I mean? You know, there's limits, you know, let's take it to the extremes. But I do think within that, like, seven years, you know, she's obviously a great actor. Yeah, um, but yeah, that was the, the sort of the type of thing I was noticing on, the, on doing my research in this film that there was sort of issues propping up that I hadn't seen in other films. Um, I think we need to we'll need to move on and need to quickly just set up the plot of the film and then we'll go and watch it. We're going to do our usual go into the film and come back and go into spoilerific detail. <laughs> Jordan, I love that, I love that word. I love it. I love it. Spoilerific. I've never heard it anywhere else. Uh, I've I've nicked it, so it's it's not completely uh, it's not completely original for me. Gordon, you want to uh, just talk us through the main plot of this film, then the setup for this one? Yeah, man. Um, so tomorrow never dies, and from all the stuff we've been saying there, Steve, or you've been saying, we're getting the idea that it sounds like a pretty troubled production. You know, um, Brosnan not been quite on board with the casting, um, people turning up late last minute rewrites what happens is well uh, also to uh, the other leading cast members so well Terry Hatcher plays Paris Carver Elliot Carver who is the um, well <laughs> you'll find out yeah we'll just I'll just say he's the main villain um, her who she's married to is played by Jonathan Price, the British actor yeah. and Michelle Yeoh plays Waylon as well and what happens is a Royal Navy frigate is sunk in Chinese territorial waters and it's assumed that the Chinese have attacked the British Navy and potentially a a third world war between Britain and China. But MI6 insists on getting a short time to investigate and James Bond sent out to... It's been realised that there's a a broadsheet newspaper part, which is the, the print version of a huge media corporation owned by Elliot Carver, their newspaper seemed to know about the the sinking before the British and, and Chinese governments even knew about it. So Bond is, is specifically sent out to investigate this media corporation and, and he, he first sets foot overseas in Hamburg and we'll, we'll take it from there. Yeah. Thank you, Gordon. Uh, this is... I, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Like, I think what you were going to say was essentially you'd think with all the troubles around the film that the film would be a piece of crap, but the film was the fourth biggest selling Bond film of the time and was still an exhilarating, as you put it, film. And so I'm looking forward to revisiting it. It's been so long. Steve, have you seen this one? I actually have. I've seen this a couple of times. This is, I think it might be the one I've seen the most, but for various reasons, I've seen this sort of on the telly and stuff. So I'm. I'm looking forward to seeing this, having seen the previous 17, because I'm seeing all these films in a new light now. Yeah. Fran, sorry, what were you going to say? No, it was just um, the fact that it was quite 
successful. I always felt that was possibly riding off the back of Goldeneye. That's like true. We're going and buying the tickets to see it, and yeah, you know, I I've never found this to be a particularly memorable film. Like I don't, I don't like the thing I remember about it is the, the uh, I quite like that that um, idea of a, a political situation between China and the United Kingdom and the sinking of a frigate and all that. I like that kind of thing because that kind of pulls it into the real world a bit. Yeah, but apart from that, like I, I don't have any prevailing memories really. I, put, I mean, Michelle Yeoh, I remember mm. her. Yeah, um, in particular, she's yeah, great. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Okay. Apart from that, I don't really remember much about it. I'm, it's going to be a quite a fresh experience for me to see it. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm kind of similar on that with you. Uh, so yeah, let's now let's let's cut to it. Let's go and watch Tomorrow Never Dies. And be back. Bye bye. And we are back from watching Tomorrow Never Dies. How do we all feel, gents, and you in the rooms, your rooms? Uh, Steve, it seems as though you're the closest to the, the the real journalist in the room, and I feel this film was uh, <laughs> the, the villain. Into your background. Say, I'm, I'm sure I will bring this up, but I think I felt slightly. I think triggered is the words that the kids are using these days. That portrayal of journalists at the start, particularly on all the big screens, um, daft. I think is the word I would use to describe this film. We are the Bond Daft podcast. This is the daftest Bond I think I've seen so far. So it's a five-star film then? <laughs> that might be debatable slightly. Uh, this could be interesting. Um, I think if you're if you're new to the franchise, if you're coming to Bond from nothing, or if you just want to completely switch off and sort of watch something mindless and fun, then I think this is probably the perfect one of the films. This is the first film, I think, since Moonraker, possibly, where I've got partway through and just thought, you know what, I just need to let my brain out at this point, let it rest, just sit back and sort of take in the absolute craziness that's going on. It was what kind of disappointed me, as I'm sure we're going to go into. This felt a complete reversal after two fantastic Dalton films, just a reversal right back to the movie. You know, the one-liners were back and they were coming thick and fast. The innuendo, the not even innuendo, the just bare-faced, you know, getting pumped jokes. <laughs> it was just a complete <laughs> return to what I thought we'd left behind with Roger Moore. Yeah. So it was, it, was, it was interesting, it was fun, there were some brilliant action scenes. Wei Lin was, I think, the absolute outright star of this film. She's fantastic. Yeah. But it was just a little bit kind of, it was funny, but it was just a bit stupid. Yeah. Okay. So uh, this probably sounds like a middle-of-the-road flawed, uh, disappointed were words that were used, I would say. Uh I would, I'll go next then. I actually do feel quite similar in that. The first half of the film I was really struggling with. Um, the writing stuck out as just lazy, as, as usually we'll probably want to talk about that, Fran. I think that's your area of expertise. But we were, we were talking about in the group chat, um, some of the, the dialogue just felt a bit tropey, a bit cliched. Um, but as the film went on, my interest actually, the, the, 
I think it's a trick probably to do with the fact when Wei Lin became a major part of the story. Um, the action scenes, I thought, were, some of them were fantastic. Mindless and nonsensical and crazy over the top. But I still had a lot of fun with it, which is essentially the point of these films. This is kind of, that's, that is what they are meant to evoke, that sort of thrill and excitement. And I did get that towards the end. I definitely don't think it hits the highs of Golden Goldeneye with the, the personal stakes that that brought in with the 006. I don't think the relationship between villain and, and Bond was quite quite as good. So overall, yeah, I, uh, I struggled with a lot, but there is things to take away from this film. Uh, Fran, we'll go to your thoughts on this one. Well, it's an interesting one because at the start of the film, I, I was thinking it was like it was almost like watching watching Bond half hung over or on some kind of trip. It was weird. It was there was bits of it that were so bizarre, like the bit where Bond is talking to Carver about the. You know, trying to kind of show Carver that he knows that Carver was behind the sinking of the British ship, and he's saying things like, you know, lost or adrift, like at sea, like just dropping in these lines that were so kind of. He was supposed to be a banker, a banker that was undercover at this party. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and I but and that kind of thing, and it was just, it was, it felt like the kind of lines you would get in a and and like say a movie you see on a list, and it's like the top ten movies that are so bad they're good kind of thing. And you're not really supposed to find it funny, do you know what I mean? But you, do, but you do, because it's on the nose writing or it's poorly done or whatever. Um, th- the funny thing about it is that in, in a lot of ways, really, a lot of my personal irritations come into like with characterization that kind of area were were sort of eradicated. Yeah, you know, Michelle Yeoh was fine, and really, Terry Hatcher's character was a small part. She had history with Bond. There was she wanted to, her husband to be let go and she got betrayed and you could you know you could under, you could see you know it was all of it all of that side of it was okay I mean I I think there was a few incredibly potent moments of lazy writing um, dialogue yeah um, whereas there was also moments that were absolutely outstandingly brilliant like um, Vincent I think it's is it Vincent Schiavelli or Schiavelli or whatever his name is, who played Doctor Kaufman, the the henchman who came yeah. to assassinate Bond. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I thought, I thought that little sequence. I loved that guy. I thought, I, 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 I love that actor. He's a great character actor. Well, he was died in two thousand and five, but I, I, that in particular was was a piece of kind of self referential writing that was just so good. I thought it was fantastic. So it was a real mixed bag. I think of outrageously bad moments mixed in with outrageously good moments with massive improvements in some areas like yeah. characterization of the female characters but losing the um uh like Steve McCall was saying like going back to the mood era with the one liners and things like that some of which were were terrible I mean you know this you know the, the, Brosnan doesn't quite have the charm I don't think to pull off what Moore could I don't think he's got that that daddish kind of that that the, he's too young and good looking at this point to be able to do that. Do you know what I mean? He's he's too cool to be saying this stuff. The same way Dalton, I think, knew that he was too cool to be doing one liners. He didn't want to do it, you know. Yeah. Okay. And, and I, I just have to finish on the you know the 
honestly, the, the plot itself is, Steve McCall summed it up perfectly in the chat, that Carver basically tried to start World War Three because he could get broadcasting rights in China, which which is a crazy plot. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but somehow, despite, you know, I did kind of enjoy, I enjoyed the film. Despite, you know, I, I, I was amused by it. Yeah. Okay. All right, then. Gordon, as the biggest Bond aficionado, what's your thoughts on this? Well, it's a mixed bag for me as well. Yeah, there's a lot to enjoy about this film. I mean, my viewpoint um, is that it's actually, I think the, if you look at it in terms of like three acts, the first act of the film is actually the strongest part. And it's towards the end, I think it, it falls away a little bit. I yeah. think the music's absolutely outstanding, by the way. I know I've, I've, I've gone on and on about that before. I think Brosnan's great in it. I feel the, I sometimes prefer Bond when he's sitting around being undercover. He could give it this, um, this cover story by MI6 as a banker and all that. I actually liked the way, because Bond has done this with a lot of villains. He's just kind of like, um, tried to say something provocative, like, you know, the lost at sea adrift and all that. Um, he did that with the likes of Zorin and a lot of the other villains. And, I, I've, I've got no issues with the, the innuendos or anything like that. I think there's a, a incredible special effects. I feel towards the end it just becomes a bit too much kind of bang, bang, bang. A bit too much action movie, you know. I thought Way One was pretty good. Um, yeah. Um, Paris Carver, pretty good as well. Great scene with Q. Yeah, it's a film. I, my my attention falls about the sec the towards the end of the film. I would say, and it becomes maybe a bit a bit generic towards the end. I can I can kind of agree with Gordon with you with you on that the the kind of action slant. Although what was That's interesting true. was that you did you know you did get the pairing of you got the pairing of Carver and Bond fighting each other and uh, Waylon and is it Stamper? Yeah. Um, the the main henchman they fought, and then and then it kind of moved on to Bond fighting Stamper. Now I have to say, Stamper has to get the medal for being like the most absolutely dedicated Bond henchman so far. You know, like of all time. I mean, I think we'll have to have an award in the ranking episode. We'll have all the different types of awards. And we'll make we'll make that one of the categories: uh, most dedicated henchman. So he's leading the charge alongside Jaws and Knickknack. Uh, uh, it's got to be Gobinda, surely. The, remember the Sikh henchman out of Octopus yeah. who actually goes out on the plane when he's, he's asked to. He's, he's definitely he's up there, but there. I, I mean, I'd like to see a future like CGI film, like when CGI has got to the point where it probably already has, where like, you can do photorealistic stuff and they resurrect all the Bond henchmen for one big like competition to see who can come out on top, you know, like some kind of, I don't know, like a henchman co- contest, you know. Maybe we're we'll kind of do a ranking at the end, I suppose. Anyway, we can. Yeah, but we can't. Maybe. We can't exactly resurrect them from the dead to make them all fight. That's what I want Hollywood to do. Yeah, we, we want, you want like a celebrity deathmatch type thing. Yeah, that'd be amazing. I think. Well, yeah. by the way, it was. Um, it was. Uh, it was Peter Lamont who did the production design in Goldeneye. To answer my own question from earlier, who was pretty much doing all the Bond production design. But then he went to work in Titanic and it was a guy called Alan Cameron that did this film. And I, I thought, I think, I think some of it was at Pinewood Studios, some of it maybe another studios in England. You know, the, it was quite a, a good scene between Bond and Paris in the hotel room, which was meant to be in Hamburg, but that was actually in the hotel from Stoke Park. 
which was the, the setting for the golf course in Goldfinger. And you actually see the frontage of the hotel in Goldfinger. That was the very hotel, which was an interesting throw. There was actually a lot of good throwbacks in this film, which I liked as well, particularly with the music. Yeah, I thought it was it was it was very bonding. I would say is the word to use probably. It felt like it was trying to evoke previous bonds. Um, yeah, is that is that probably why you like it the best, one of the best, or outstanding? I couldn't tell if I loved it or not. I, I think I think it was like a overall. I liked it. I think it helped the scenes. It certainly it was bombastic. It had that kind of energy that an action film would need. Is that probably what you prefer? You definitely prefer it over Golden Idol. In terms of score, yeah, by a million miles. Like I said, if you could have that, if David Arnold did a scoreless in GoldenEye, GoldenEye would, would be almost the perfect film. There's, I think it's since I've started to actually try to pay attention to the music in this film, I realise how great it is. It goes along with the, the frantic action, because at times the action does get really frantic, but some of the kind of dreamier sequences, it works well, the underwater. I think David Arnold actually said that he he was a huge John Barry fan and based a lot of his style on him. And there, there is, there's actual throwbacks. And I think this is a, a fact in certain areas. Like the, when Bond <coughs> and Dr. Kaufman have that confrontation, the, the music is this kind of descending pattern. It's like, da, 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 da. I think that's actually deliberately emulating the spider sequence from Dr. No. And oh, if you, really? and see it, vibes I was getting from the, the initial, uh, the pre-title sequence, which I thought was really good, actually one of the better ones in the series. Yeah, uh, it was very from Russia with Love-esque, the da 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 you know? And yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, there's other bits as well. There's certain bits, you know, that I kind of, ah, uh, there's certain bits I thought were like a throwback to Goldfinger and stuff. I would also say, I, I mean, I liked Cheryl Crow's song. It's, it's kind of catchy, but I absolutely adore the song at the end, which was actually supposed to be the, the main theme for the film is substituted later on Surrender by KD Lyon. It's an amazing song. And it's actually woven throughout the soundtrack. And Steve, I mean, you, you talk, talked about in Thunderball how you couldn't believe that Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang wasn't the main theme. And it's, uh, it's the same situation here where again, it's throughout the soundtrack, mm-hmm. uh, but they substituted it later on. And it's just, it's so classic Bond, that song. It's, it's got the kind of, the, the trumpets were that kind of wah sound, which used to get in a lot of one, a lot of the earlier films like Goldfinger, yeah. for example. And actually, I, I listened to an interview with the, probably the main trumpet player throughout the, the, the James Bond catalogue. And they used to use this device. They called it a plunger because it was like a toilet plunger. They used to put it on the actual yeah. end part of the trumpet and it gave it that sort of wah sound, if you know what I mean. I think if you pay attention to a lot of the, the songs, you'll know, you'll, be able to pick it out, and there was a lot of that, and and actually, KD Lang's voice, it was it was like Shirley Bassey from Goldfinger. I just think that's such a good song, and it's a real, it's so classic Bond. It's such a shame that that wasn't as as good as Cheryl Crow's song is. I think that should have been the main song. So I've never uh, listened. That's the first time really I've taken notice even of that song, and I did like it. It seemed like a great uh, song that was playing over the end credits. Um, but I, I need to listen to it more to sort of give my opinion on you know, if it would place it. I certainly really like Cheryl Crow's song. I think um, it's it is. I think her voice is fantastic. Um, and the instrumentation I think is really good. It it works really well for me that song. Um, so it's you know I, I can't say if I what I prefer at this stage, but uh, I'll, yeah, interesting observation. But I would also think? say. 
Well, the last thing I was just going to say was um, David Arnold's not shy to use the the actual Bond theme. There was a lot of this in this film, which I really, the first part when he arrives at the MI6 headquarters in Aston Martin that you know gets the the blood pumping. I I really like that. There's so much of it. It's when Bond does something cool. That's when you tend to hear the Bond theme, and they they used it. They didn't overuse it in this film. I think it you know it really really worked. I I, I agree. In the, in the sense that, I mean, even in the later films that I've gone to see in the cinema, you know, Daniel Craig, I like to hear the, you know, I like to hear the Bond theme come in mm. at certain yeah. points. I like, yeah, when they time it really well, I can get a sort of goosebump feeling. But I do sometimes, and I find this with other franchise films as well that have motifs and you know, if the music's very much going back to the classic music of the franchise, or it can it can kind of fade into the background a little bit. Whereas if the music's quite dynamic and quite maybe a little bit different sometimes, like I like them, I like them a mixture of I'd say a a fifty fifty mix of your kind of classic music with another with with another spin on it going on. You know that's why I always like the title songs, even if they're a bit you maybe they're not the best. The title sequence songs I always enjoy because I feel like they take elements of the the Bond uh, theme and they 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 put it into a, a, a different song. With a different sound, and I, I enjoy that. I enjoy that. That kind of yeah. Thing that's well. what they. That's what they did in this. Yeah, because they used. They actually used a lot of the KD Lang song. They used a little bit of uh, Cheryl Crow's song in the score, which worked well too. Like in the when Bond was infiltrating the the sort Carver warehouse where he discovered the safe. Um, there was a bit of that. Uh-huh. Right. Okay. Um. Yeah, I would say. So I like the music, but the the actual images over the titles as well, I quite liked. I thought, I thought the sort of uh, it, it they reminded were very nineties. Those you can tell it was, it was probably ninety seven. <laughs> yeah. Those graphics, they were, they were fantastic though. They really worked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right though. It did have a Matrix vibe to it. Yeah. In general, it was a kind of brighter, more vibrant, and colourful film than Goldeneye. Not to take too much away from Goldeneye, but like I said, there was there was a bit of a kind of datedness about Goldeneye, a bit of a dullness. This. You could almost say if you wanted to liken the the mid nineties and Britpop and all that to the swinging sixties, it was like a kind of swinging nineties feel to this yeah. film in a lot of ways. You know, within the first few seconds, you saw that I think because you had like, within the first few sort of minutes, you saw the sort of command center with the massive screens and the control panel where M and the Admiral were, and it, immediately it's the most modern of any Bond film, I think I've seen it immediately too, you're right into, right, this is the technological age, this is the night, the, the late 90s, um, all the, the computers, and they were, they were, they liked their big screens, particularly in this film. Yeah. Everyone seemed to, seemed to have these massive floor-to-ceiling, um, including the newspaper guy, which I've, I've got to say I've never <laughs> seen, but that as an aside, it immediately <laughs> looks more modern and fantastic. <laughs> Um, and I, I really, I, I liked that about it. It absolutely kind of, it brought it into the, because into the 21st century, but it was, it wasn't quite there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Carver's like media room, newsroom and the, the big event room as well. They had that sort of like flashing, it was constantly blue flashing lights. There was a lot of lens flare and all these sort of things. It was, it was a very different looking set that from what we've seen for Spawn films as well. The thing is, we can kind of, t- I feel like, 
I feel like there may be a slight little bit of missing the point with GoldenEye in the sense that GoldenEye was about the fall of the Soviet Union. I was just about to say that, to be honest. Yeah, that was to me. GoldenEye's look fitted the film GoldenEye. It had to, and and Tomorrow Never Dies has went its own way, and I think rightfully so. It's different, and it's modern, it's looking forward. Yeah, Uh, you know, I think they complement each other quite well. Um, You know, you, you had a transition Bond film. Goldeneye was a trans a transitory is a film that was going between two different eras. It was going between yeah. the Cold War and the, the New World. Where they had and obviously we've got our first post Cold War enemy, the media mogul, the capitalist, the you know, wants to take over the whatever. That kind of guy. As opposed to your political or he's you know, he's obviously a psychopath carver. Let's let's talk about Carver then now that we're sort of onto him. Um what do you think about him and his his main plan? <laughs> I mean, I I'll kind of defer to Steve McCall on this one because <laughs> he's probably you know, he's probably got more of a you know I, a view Yeah, on it. I mean it was once it was revealed that the entire reason he was effectively starting a war between Britain and China that involved <laughs> effectively blowing up the capital instead of blowing up Beijing was because he'd been refused broadcasting rights. I mean, that wouldn't have been the only country. The countries that generally refuse national broadcasting rights to broadcasters like that are China, Iran, and North Korea. And I would have liked to have seen him take on the um, the latter two of those. But as a as a reason for starting this enormous war, I mean, that's the bit that properly had me sort of aghast, going, "Oh my God, that's the that's the plot." Yeah. So that that felt over the top ridiculous. I mean, it it, it made me laugh. I'll absolutely give it that much. <laughs> yeah, probably not. But as a character, I think Carver played psychopath really well. Um, yeah. I was trying to work out why I knew the actor, and obviously it was uh, he played the yeah. sort of slightly psychotic um, religious guy in Game of Thrones. I think most yeah. recently. But yeah, he the way he sort of delivered his lines and stuff like that felt particularly. Um, sort of, it, it was almost sort of Max Zorin level of sort of cool, calm, not kind of over the top, psychotic. Yeah, um, until possibly a little bit later on in the film when he was on the the self boats. Yeah, but I, I I enjoyed him a lot. I with Carver, um, just definitely towards the very end of the film. I mean, he showed it earlier on too. I mean, there was you know when he's saying we better send my wife to the doctor. You know this whole idea of. He, kill his own wife and all that sort of thing and you know if people don't immediately do what he wants he just screams that they're fired you know he's meeting with all of the other editors and <laughs> the journalism world out there who are all evil you know every single one <laughs> <laughs> you know who are all like oh, you know, the, you know. the correspondents were brilliant yeah, yeah. release the it was just released the tape of the president with the was it a waitress a cocktail waitress or something yeah. in a motel and I thought that that is that might be happening right now. That is, I'm sure, there's a video of Trump doing exactly that. Yeah, I think it was relevant to the times in the the mid '90s when mass media was really starting to take off. And I think Carver was based on guys like Rupert Murdoch. Oh yeah, um, Murdoch. Yeah. I mean, you could kind of see where the, it's. Kinda, it's I, think a, it a, I think it's a clever idea for a, a villain, you know, to bring into the contemporary world because you know we look at the world we, we probably had no idea even at that time 97 how technology would be just now you know that's how that is how a bond villain you know goes for world domination they do it through the media 
through through likes and shares. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. that's what we do. That's what we do. We want I mean, nomination. That, that actually feels, as much as you say it probably was right for the time, it actually feels more prescient now. It doesn't... Yeah. It, it, yeah. it had... I could see a lot of your Trumps and all these kind of figures. I could see a lot of that in him now. And it, it, it was a bit... That was actually one of the things I took away from that I liked. Whereas back in the day, this film, I couldn't stand Carver as a villain. I didn't, I didn't get him as a child. Coming off the back of Goldeneye, I of course have to state that. When you've got Alex Trevelyan and Urimov and Xenia and you've got this media guy as your main villain, I didn't get it. Steve, bear in mind that, that Carver's probably more of an analogue for people like um, Mark Zuckerberg or Jeff Bezos or folks yeah, like that. Yeah. Steve um, Jobs is who he reminded me of immediately. I think it was the old the sort of black... Um, yeah. yeah. I really... Sort of pop type thing that, with the big pictures of him. It reminded me of an Apple you know, sort of iPhone yeah. launch. You know, thinking about it, there may be an element of that there of the Steve Jobs. Because Steve Jobs, even at that time, was doing those big bombastic, you know, launches. And you had Clinton yeah. with Monica Lewinsky oh, yeah. and all these things going on. So, you know, the writer said... He was based on Robert Maxwell. And people think it's... But it was Robert Maxwell was actually who he was based on. Well, do you know what? Maxwell and, probably wasn't too different to Carver. Maxwell, and was, I, and, Maxwell was a bit of a character in his day, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. Yes. And look at his daughter. Daughter and who she spent time with. Um, Epstein. But yeah, it was interesting seeing a villain um, pretty much, yeah, going back to the Moor era, going back to Moonraker, that sort of megalomaniacal type psychotic villain, um, no basis in reality to an extent. Um, You know, he does just fire his assistant as soon as one thing goes wrong. He kills his wife at the even assumption that maybe she might have had a past with this banker that might not be a banker. Uh, He is just the worst human being, but... Yeah, it's cartoonish in a sense. It's actually, as much as it's ridiculous and it, it's you can make fun of it in a way, it's kind of nice having that film, you know, it's not like we've just had a villain like that t- two films ago. Moonraker was uh, 79, was the last we've really seen of that, I would say. Maybe, I, mean, I suppose maybe Zorin. I suppose he was like Zorin as well, which was 85. So, um, you know, we're talking 12 years later. I, well, I know exactly do. how he feels. I mean, like being in the middle of a conference for the power just to get cut. I mean, how many times has it happened to me talking to you guys on Skype? That was his big launch and Bond just pulls the plug. I mean, God. Poor girl, though. I mean, <laughs> it's poor assistant. What, what are we going to do? Fire Skype? Yeah. <laughs> the whole of Skype. Can't believe you let us down. But, um, yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I, 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 henchmen, I think, were more interesting to me in this film than the main villain. Like, um, I love the fact that Kaufman got a reference later on when, when they turned up at the skyscraper and Carver's talking about Kaufman's research into torture and how, how he was a father figure to the other henchmen. And at this point, he's already dead, isn't he? Yeah, so he'd been killed, yeah. But, like, you could see um, when Kaufman was shot, like, Stamper was shouting... Kaufman down his, his walkie-talkie, you know, he was obviously concerned for him, you know, like, I, I like the fact there was a little bit of, I always find that interesting, where there's, a, where there's a kind of an ecosystem going on between the henchmen, you know, that, that they know each other somehow, or there's a, a respect, or, you know, there's a, a little pecking order between them, or some history, I love that. They could have done more with that, I think, though, and maybe oh, involved yeah. Kaufman more, because he was great, yeah. I, I do... Um, Stamper I found, I found was a bit bland and generic as a henchman really Kaufman would have been so yeah. much better I mean I thought uh, yeah. I, I cannot overstate how much I loved that scene like I I just loved that 
I, I thought I, I, were, I love that yeah. actor they were right on the line though with the tone in that scene because at times there was a moment where I was like this doesn't feel like a Bond film now it feels that sort of over a little too silly it, it, it was fine it was on the line but I think uh, him apologising and stuff like that I, this is so embarrassing and all this sort of stuff <laughs> well, see, what, see when you're talking about the line see that tightrope they walked there that took skill that was some serious skill going on there to write that like that, just to just to edge it between, you know, to walk that tightrope of between absurdity and being believable, you know? Sometimes I think it's because some characters in Bond films have, they have a very kind of short but sweet uh, screen presence. They are the ones that are sometimes really highly regarded. Like, I think Henderson, you, you only live twice. The, he was the first character that Charles Gray played, and, like, everyone's always like, oh, why couldn't he been in that film for longer? You know, it's kind of like that with Kaufman. Uh, one thing I like with Stamper, actually, though, is see at the end when him and... I like the fact he kind of shows almost superhuman strength, almost like Audra Bonds punch him in the face and he hardly even feels it. But I like how, see, just as he's about to die, he utters this this laugh, it's kind of like the Predator in a way, but it's, it reminds me, he's like, <laughs> it's almost like, remember Bond and Teehee at yeah. the end of Live and Let Die, and Teehee's kind of got the, his metal armor where Bond's thrown, he's like, hey, 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 <laughs> and it's it just, it's all, I don't know if it was a deliberate throwback, it was kind of funny, but yeah, I mean, that, they should have done more to, they needed to give um, Stamper maybe more of a signature in the same way as like, Necros and Living Dailies had the explosive milk bottles and all that. Maybe Stamper, they should have done more with his like sort of superhuman strength without making it over the top. But maybe more using his torture devices or something like that. It was just a bit kind of generic for me. I think in the tone of the film, it wouldn't have worked. Alluding to the torture was probably enough for the tone of the film. They actually really showed you the torture yeah. like the film hadn't set up the, if it was licensed to kill that would have fitted really well but this film's tone I mean as much as it was violent imply, yeah maybe you can imply it I suppose you can imply torture though because um, or just if you think about well seeing the world's not enough there's a thing Electric King does where Bond's in a kind of difficult situation he manages to get out of or even when, when Bond he wasn't actually he didn't actually get put in any pain physical pain by Goldfinger with the, the laser but almost he was in peril you know there maybe should have been a, a scene later in the film where Bond was in a bit more peril because I, I just thought that like towards the middle to end part of the film um, it didn't grab my attention enough it grabbed my attention a lot when I first saw it in about 1998 when I get given it in video but that's because i think when you're young like you mentioned steve watching goldeneye you just want to see action so that was fine at that age so maybe that you know the film obviously did really well in the cinema but i would like to see a bit more characterization and stuff like that or a bit more of a twist something it became towards it needed that extra something towards the end of the film i think i I think that's I think that's, yeah, I think this film, that's one of the main things. It's a lacking film. It feels like it doesn't do anything totally original. It doesn't, it, it's it's homage and it's it's references and callbacks. Bringing in things to a modern age, that's maybe one thing you could give it that, that you touched on. But I think that's about it. Yeah, well, okay, it yeah. was, was absolutely like the, the newest, fresh part of the film. Okay, let's, yeah, let's talk about her then. You've got a counterpart to Bond. Yeah. Um, which was great, and it was a believable counterpart. It wasn't, you know, I mean, I've always 
got a, a sigh and a shake of the head. Like if I see something in a film and I'm like, oh God, it's just been, you know, plot armor's thick here or whatever. It never felt like that with Michelle Yeoh in this film. She was someone who was facing the same dangers, the same challenges, making mistakes at the same, t- you know, times, you know, going through She was earning her place in the film, the same, yeah. you know, and to do that in just one film, because bear in mind, this is Bond's 18th appearance, right? So we're used to Bond. He doesn't have to earn his screen presence anymore because we've seen him in 18 movies and we know what he's capable of. So for a for a new character to come in like that, especially the, probably the first true female counterpart to Bond that we've had in, in a modern sense, I would say. Uh, um, yeah. And, and, and also the fact that uh, the first kiss that they shared was actually him giving her air under the water at the end so like it wasn't even like romantic you could tell there was very subtle moments throughout their interaction that you could tell that there was an attraction between them but uh, she was uh, she was resisting bond on that and and running away from, not running away but like like kind of there's a scene where they're that where she locks him against a pipe with um what is it uh handcuffs and runs off and leaves him there and but you know as it goes on, it's very slow. There's there's a scene where they're in the the Chinese gadget room, like the with all the Chinese gadgets, machine guns, computers that she's kind of opened up for Bond, and she looks at him, and there's a lot communicated in that little look there, you know, where she's becoming fond of him, and and it's very slow, and in fact, the romantic scene between them isn't even until the very last last scene of the film. Yeah, and and you can believe it because he's just saved her life. In fact, they've saved each other's lives at that point, and there was already a bit of chemistry going on there, you know, that had been resisted throughout the course of the film. So I thought, I thought that was that was great. I mean, I, I hands down have no complaint at all about that, and I and I don't think they overcompensated. I don't think there was anybody in the writers' room going, "We need a strong female character here." Blah blah blah. I think they just honestly wrote her, you know, and I think there's a lot to learn from that today. That they should look at this film and look at how Michelle Yeoh was written. That was a fantastic example of that. Yep, Steve, what are you going to say? I enjoyed the the kind of power play that point where they were handcuffed and they got on the motorbike. That entire scene with the bike, where it almost it started off for the first few seconds, Bond was being his kind of usual patronizing stuff. Oh, get on the bike. The bike's faster. No, I'm I'm driving. You get on the back. <laughs> but she so quickly established her capability. And that kind of swift move where she got on in front of him, kind of straddling him, and then sort of she was almost lookout while he was driving, and then the communication and the kind of the the balance of power shifting where one was doing something, then the other was doing something, that was really clever, I thought. Yeah. Um, and as you were saying, Fanny, that it was, she was like a counterpart to Bond. She wasn't. She wasn't either. She wasn't at one end of the scale being babysat by him, where she was the sort of damsel in distress. And she wasn't at the other end, the complete kind of kick-ass doing everything while Bond sort of sat back and took in the, all the credit. He was, there was a sort of 50-50 power balance. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I really, yeah. I liked how they did that. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, I mean, it could, I, I, these days you might see, like, she might be a lot more, if it was written today, I would expect to see the character being a bit more abrasive towards Bond. Whereas yeah. it felt like they had developed... I think they developed a mutual respect and a professional respect for each other as yeah. they were going through the film, each other's abilities. They saw each other make mistakes, though, because she saw him make a few mistakes 
um, uh, there was a few times where Bond kind of slipped up when he was trying to get away from people, and there was one particular scene where Bond saw her break in and set off an alarm. I remember that. So there was they were watching each other making mistakes. They were teasing each other as they were going on. You know, they were criticizing each other, but also laughing at each other's jokes. You know, there was there was a lot of there was just a very finely balanced interplay there that I think um, is probably the main strength of it. I think that's the main draw of this movie. I think is Michelle Yeoh and, and Bond, uh, uh, Michelle yeah. Yeoh and Pierce Brosnan's interaction in this film. Yeah, yeah, I, I loved it. I actually struggled to say any real chemistry between Michelle Yeoh and Brosnan in this film. I honestly did. I, I thought she was a great character. I thought it was about time that they had a uh, another agent from another world power working with Bond and the fact that she was Bond's equal in so many ways and she, <laughs> I liked how they had the the Chinese Secret Service safe house and there was even there was a lot of Q Branch style gadgets that came in there but I, I, I honestly, I didn't really feel any real chemistry between the two of them but, you I, know, want, I, want to, I want to explore that a little bit further actually I'm curious. I want to quickly say first, I think, um, I don't think the chemistry from a romantic point of view is there for this film as much as, let's compare as as usual to Goldeneye with Natalia. I think there is definite more romantic sexual chemistry between Bond and Natalia in Goldeneye than there is in this film. However, the character interplay in this film is probably, at least if not equal, probably better in this film. Fran, what were you going to say? It felt like repressed chemistry to me. It felt like two people who were professionals. Probably, um, uh, it was more adult. Well, Michelle Yeoh's character was more professional than Bond, actually, at the at the start of the whole thing. But obviously, you could tell that she she felt an attraction towards Bond as time was going on. You know, um, but I think I think it's subtle chemistry. I think it's. I mean, I've I've. I've experienced things like that in my life before. I've got to know someone over time, and you can tell that you, you know, you there's something under the surface, but it, it it's not the time of the place to, you know. It was more adult. Yeah, it's glances and less. It's less. It's less actual dialogue and things like that and innuendos. You don't have to be like taking them to dinner with like wine, champagne, and like candles, and taking them to bed. That's not real life chemistry. Is do you know what I mean? It felt more like real. It felt more real to me. In this film, okay. yeah, but then again, you're, you're looking at Terry Hatcher. Sorry, Gordon, what were we going to say? I don't know, I like Fran. I think Fran still. Well, well, just to compare it to Terry Hatcher, that was a historical chemistry. You could tell that even though she would moved on and loved her husband, she still was attracted to Bond, and that was a lot more intense, wasn't it? So that yeah. was believable as well. But that was a different. That was in a different way. So I actually think Terry Hatcher did well in this film. I, I thought she played that character. It was almost like a quite a sad character. She's actually been on record and said that she regretted doing it. I think she didn't like the the way the character was written. It was uh, I think her her words she used was superficial, which is interesting. Uh, I, 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 to me, the only thing I could see was she, her character falls into the trope that is used in all the films, especially around this that era. Woman is killed to give main character. Uh, motivation in the plot. Bridging. Yeah, I mean that. I mean that. It falls into that. That's what that is. But you know, it, it worked for the film. Uh, it's a Bond film. We don't expect much more than that. I think she played it really well. I mean, uh, I was impressed actually with the way that she, her expressions and how she showed. You know, like after a conversation with Bond, 
Bond would go off or whatever, and you'd get a shot of Terry Hatcher playing this this character. Paris, her name was, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. And she really looked like she had conflict going on in her head. I mean, she did well as an actress with what she was given. Ah, uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I thought she was really good. Yeah, yeah, I, I feel the same things. The You could tell there was history there between her and Bond. I think that should have been explored a bit more, and we should have found out how. And it sounded like Bond had left her to pursue a mission, and it was always left hanging there. And she felt upset about that, and that, um, but she, it was as though she truly loved Bond. I think that should have been that we should have felt how he did that. We should have found out how, and that there could have been a bit more made with that. But I, I thought she played the character really well. Yeah, I think um, it's to do with pacing, really, isn't it? For this film to keep it rapid, quite you know, it was a nice fast-paced film. It didn't linger too much. Too much. We weren't bored as such. Uh, to keep that going you kind of had to yeah if you wanted to build chemistry with Mei Lin you had to essentially that's why they had to kill off her character earlier in the film it's just it's just it's if that's the problem with having two love interests in the film yeah and I think the problem as well is that as a writer if someone said to me I want you to write a scene or I want you to explain why um this woman had history with Bond and why she's upset my my retort to that would be but we've seen that a thousand fucking times. We know that Bond goes off on missions. We know that Bond leaves women behind. We know that they're usually upset. We don't need yeah. to expose the audience to this. All we need to do is imply it because the audience knows exactly who she is and exactly what she's gone through. Well, but by killing her off, I think it was that was that really kind of sucked you in as well. It was kind of good how they uh-huh. had that. That that's the sort of thing makes you kind of sit up in your seat and readjust yourself and think, right, we're yeah. into actually kind of dark stuff here as well. Definitely. I think that was quite a brave move. I thought that was, you know, it, it, that's why I didn't really see it as fridging in a sense, because I felt like it actually gave gravitas towards her character. The fact that she, she you know, she, she put herself in danger. I don't want to go into that argument really, because we have spoken about that before, but I don't think that's the, that ends up, not really the point. The argument is, as always, essentially, if a woman is used as a as a motivation for the if a death of a woman is the motivation for the lead, then that is what fridging is. But let's not go into that. It was a film in nineteen ninety seven, and it's got all sorts of tropes. I don't think you could hold it to that and say, you know, it's a, it's a Bond film, especially a Bond film that is playing on the old Moore era. It's got a lot of that sort of stuff. I don't I mean, really. I wouldn't be overly critical of it at all for that. I actually no. I, I thought it was used as a different device, to be honest. I thought it was actually to give more gravitas to her character, but I guess it depends on your, your views on the writing of the film or think, write, how you would write. I think I think the purpose for me of her dying was to show the villainy, the sheer villainy, the lengths that uh, Carver goes to, that he'd kill his wife. Uh-huh. Uh, Bear in mind, he, shot, he was shooting his other henchman as well. Like, remember the computer programmer guy? He just murdered him as soon um, as Bond like said... As soon as he said to the guy, um, so what do I need to do to launch this bomb? And the guy said, well, you just have to press the magic button. And he's like, your, your contract's up and just murders him right there on the spot, you know? Yeah. And so, for a like, guy with just a journalism background, he's an incredible <laughs> marksman, isn't he? I mean, yeah, how far yeah. away was he from? He just I mean, yeah. shot him in the head one shot. <laughs> Steve, how has your journalism training taken in marksman uh, skills? I must, have, I must have been off that module. I mean, I remember managerial finance, but I don't remember marksmanship. <laughs> right, okay. I think it was just Got the crossbows, wasn't it? Not, not the actual 
handguns. <laughs> yeah, I it's it, it's a certainly an unbelievable villain. Like you could not give this film uh, sort of marks for b- believability in, in a and that side of things. I don't think, but it didn't. It wasn't going for that. I don't think in some ways. So it's fine. Uh, what do you I think? Also, of, loving yeah, how right. sorry how the the Bond villain Tunic made. An appearance again after Trevelyan War One, and then we had like Kamal Khan and Blofeld. See, the, every single scene, Carver didn't even wear like a smart suit or anything. It was always this black, all over black. Do you know what I mean? It's almost like the the um, uniform that a lot of the Star Trek characters wear, <laughs> and it did add. See, I suppose it did add to the feel of him being a megalomaniac. These silver hair, glasses. It was a, it was a kind of, it was maybe kind of an evil look. It, it kind of looked the part in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think we need a bit more characterization from from uh, from uh, Carver, though. A bit of backstory about maybe some we had well, the likes of Zorin. We had how he was um, basically a Nazi experiment from the concentration camps. We needed to hear, or we need maybe needed to see um, Carver doing a bit more. He was a bit just kind of standing around and giving instructions. We, I, I feel we needed a bit more from him. <laughs> It was it actually he started off in a newspaper in was it Hong Kong or something uh, like yeah. that. Yeah. So he obviously started out from very sort of yeah. humble journalistic beginnings, similar to I imagine <laughs> Rupert Murdoch <laughs> and Robert Maxwell. But the way he seems to have worked his way up to to that position. <laughs> so yeah. while we were he, he busy a bit more context, while we were busy trying to learn about a thousand words per minute shorthand, he was probably down at the firing range trying out <laughs> all these pistols. <laughs> I, I I found it. I actually found Carver to be quite an amusing villain, to be honest. Like, given the fact, I think, given the fact that we've all had, we've all been educated in the world of journalism or worked in it. I mean, Steve McCall, I think you've you've had the most experience out of all of us, you know. But all of us have either written or done freelance or worked for periods of time, you know. And imagining, you know, editors or whatever that we've known suddenly going through. Like years, years of experience and becoming megalomaniacal murdering psychopaths at the end of it all, you know. It's I just love so the, unbelievable. I love that, that we talked about it quickly, but I'll bring it back. Just that scene when they're talking with the other editors, his uh, collaborators, and the guy that they've got the, the system they're implementing with all the bugs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like <laughs> lots of upgrades. It's like it's so devious. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, like all those editors, right? I mean. We know that there's certain areas of the press that like a good bit of dirt and a good a good clickbait headline, as you might call it these days, where you know you want to draw people in, and there's certain elements of the media. Certainly, I mean, there was inquiries into Rupert Murdoch in what was it, 2010, 2011, when they were looking into what he was up to. Maxwell as well, you know, questionable. Um, we're in the age of social media control and narratives as well. In a lot of ways, it's it's kind of believable that. You know, people have got dirt on other people. I mean, look at look at Epstein and his uh, uh, his his materials that he had, and who you know who wanted who out of the way and all this. There's a dark world where that kind of thing happens, but it certainly doesn't come out of low level journalists that work their way up. <laughs> I mean, it's not it's, it, it, megalomania is not a meritocracy. Do you know what I mean? It's not like you can apply for the low level job and work your way up from the shop floor to be the <laughs> megalomaniac. <Yeah. laughs> I thought it was a beautiful moment how Bond completely ruined his big launch in Hamburg by pulling the plug on his, basically, it's just like the big master switch, Bond just pulls it out and, uh, and it just, you could tell how hurt he is, he's getting mocked on 
on TV and some satire show and all that. He's rage. It's just the sort of thing Bond is. Again, that's kind of classic Bond. He did uh, embarrass like Goldfinger playing golf. He embarrassed um, like he basically embarrasses guys by un- undoing their big events and undoing their plans. That Bond just it's just you could, classic you could Bond. Say, Gordon, you could say that it's almost like psych- it's part of Bond's kind of psychological warfare. Like he, yeah. he, he tries to kind of destabilize these guys a wee bit before he goes in for the kill. At the end, he, he sort of, yeah. you know, he, he likes to to shake their world up a wee bit, you know. And a lot of the time, they don't know who did it. They don't know who was responsible. But you know, things aren't going quite to plan anymore. You know, quite clever. I want to touch on Carver's death. Uh, that was quite a a gruesome way to go. Um, it's the way that Brosnan delivers, like, it's like a delayed one-liner, or I suppose it's about six lines to leading up to the punchline of his death. Uh, give the people what they want, or whatever, and then he, the big, I don't know, thing kills him. I've got breaking news for you, yeah. yeah. Any journalist who gets killed, I think, is precluded with that line. Yeah, I know. that. It, it did feel like the writers had tried to write all of the different puns they could think of, you know, they'll print anything, you know, uh, anything remotely related to media and journalism uh, and try and get some in there. I I guess. To what extent they brought in genuine tabloid headline writers in to write some of the script? Because a lot of it could easily have been taken off the front page of the old news of the world. Maybe. Yeah, I know. I know. And the way that Brosnan delivered, like, normally the one-liner, in my memory, they're usually delivered to another character, so it doesn't look completely out of place that he's standing on his own, speaking to no one with a witty one-liner. But that is exactly what happened in this film, when he says that line, when um, the guy goes through the printing press. A pretty horrible way to go as well. The blood's all over the sheets, and then he says that line, uh, they'll print anything. But it is him, it's, it's him standing there. If you imagine you were a bypasser, and just seen James Bond there like <laughs> sort of fixing his tie and just saying this pithy one liner to no one did Moore and Connery not do that quite a bit I, certainly Moore I, 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 I like the one liners in this I, film I, they're alright I, I think they're a bit plentiful but like yeah there was the shocking line no one was there for Sean Connery when he said shock but it was one one word that it worked for the film that was the first one I think they did but like most of them are usually to like other characters there's usually a side character that he's saying it to yeah I mean I like to I like to believe that when Bond is doing it on his own he's doing it because of the, the sheer horror of what was going on Bond has to say something to break the like his psychological trauma he could have. Like, like he's got to try and make it funny in some way. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah. I mean, even like in Thunderball when he steals when he's he's just spying in someone in a room and he steals a grape and eats it. He didn't have to do that. It's just for his sort of his own fun. Yeah, uh, you know, levity they call it. I mean, it's it's basically the idea that. Um, what's interesting here, actually, if we look at laughter as a as a evolved behavior. Is that laughter was evolved to break tension. So humor animals actually can laugh. Dogs, they did an experiment on dogs. Dogs do actually have a laughter response. Like if dogs watch a human trip up or something, they will laugh in their own way. Dog, they've studied this. Um, wow. But it, it formed as a group response to tense, tense and difficult to understand situations, which is why people sometimes break out with laughter at like funerals or disasters thing like people just it happens you know so I, i've always thought bond was doing that because of 
his brain needed him to like say something. Do you know what I mean? Just to to break that. I mean, he kind of did need that because his kill count in this film is insane. Not to mention the collateral damage caused um, by that amazing scene with the... We haven't spoken about it at all, actually. The remote-controlled BMW um, that then careens into nearly killing a bunch of civilians in the, in the middle of the street, which could have easily happened, and it goes through a shop window with Bond just sort of fixing his tie and <laughs> kind of chuckling to himself. It was that scene where I went, nah, you know what, I give up. I'm just letting my brain completely loose and just going with it. That was that's one of the most ridiculous scenes I think I've seen in any film. It, it was the commentary from the, the program's German woman who was sort of control voice in the car. And it was the, I think it was the combination of the, of the usual ineptitude of the henchmen that were sent after Bond the sort of comical commentary from the from the car itself, weirdly enough, given the sort of funny instructions, the car plunging into a, the car hire shop that we obviously saw Q working for undercover earlier. And just the, the, the complete slapstick, I think, of that chase. It yeah. was utterly in, insane. Um, and it is just, you have to just let, you have to just kind of give up and watch the impending madness rather than try to kind of critically analyze or make any sense of it. That's the point where you go, you know what? This film yeah. is ridiculous. Well, that's the thing. I mean, we're not critiquing, you know, we're not critiquing Citizen Kane here. I mean, it's yeah. not, you know, and you, and that's not a disparagement on the Bond franchise. You could say the same about Star Wars, Star Trek, Marvel, you know, once every so often it was it yeah. was moonraker it was this you yeah. need one where it's just complete megalomaniac ridiculousness and, and this was it and in yeah. fairness it did it well it was ridiculously enjoyable but yeah. it was a bit of a shock i think after two very serious dalton films and then goldeneye they yeah. maybe realized after the bmw was unused in goldeneye that they had to have that sort of car chase sequence here, perhaps? I don't know. I mean, I was more I mean, interested... I, I mean, that's, that's a shame, though, if that was the reason it was in it, because that is the worst reasoning you can have, is that our sponsorship deal wasn't didn't go according to plan, let's put it in. But I don't think completely that's why it was in it, but I think you might be right. There's probably an element to that. Well, I, I was more... As I like watching it as an adult now, compared to when I, I first used to watch it a lot as a kid... I'm more interested now in the, the scene where he actually gets a brief from the BMW BQ because I think it's a great exchange between Bond and Q. This is, out of the, the Brosnan films, that's the, the scene between Bond and Q I enjoy the most. It was fairly brief, but especially I'm getting vibes from Desmond Llewellyn there and Brosnan that it's going back to the the days when the Bond angered Q quite a bit. And you can just the way he looks at Bond, the way Bond looks at him, the way the way there's just this great chemistry between Brock and Llewellyn in those scenes is better than because I feel in Goldeneye Bond and Q to enjoy it properly they were a bit too pally. I liked I liked it getting back to the old style sequences yeah, between Bond I, and Q. I, I kind of I can see that that would work and especially in a film that is evoking to me the older Moore era films. I can get that and it, it was a short sequence. I didn't find it like amazing, but I, I actually liked the jovial sort of chemistry that seems to have happened in Goldeneye because it felt like a natural evolution if you're to believe that this is the same Bond from previous uh, so, but I, I mean I liked, still to me it's like the 
mandatory scene you've got to have it it's fantastic Desmond Llewellyn of course it's his penultimate film in the Bond franchise is there a reason why there was a caged tiger behind them when they were showing off the BMW oh it was um, important because I thought they were going to make a point over something that something was going to happen with it but it was just there it was just, <laughs> it was just like foreign imports basically because it was, like, it was a, a private jet Bond's BMW and then a fucking tiger in a cage uh, well, and they didn't that, even reference it well, that, that's what they do so it's like if you get cars cars animals these things have to get delivered by either shipping container or big cargo planes like that yeah so I think it must have just been some other rich guy like you know they basically chartered that flight for Bond's car to be sent over from Britain it just, it looks like it was in position to be a proper, a, a joke for something, but it was, and it looks it looks like an actual tiger. So it's like they got it in to be in the background of the Q showing Bond around the car scene and then went, right, that's it, take the tiger back. Um, yeah. I just, I mean, it was it only was a spot in the background and thought, why? I mean, it was pretty extravagant for background yeah. detail. I mean, I have to admit, but I mean, in terms of believability, it was like, I, I, I remember years ago thinking about that and then I kind of looked it up because I was looking, I was like, it got me interested actually in how animals are transported. I was I was looking at it and it turns out exotic animals, yeah, they, they send them by things like that. So you get your expensive cars, government stuff, big big animals and cages and things. They'll send them by shipping container or... Yeah. They yeah. send animals, they tend to send animals by plane more than container, but cars they'll send by container and things like that. So... Right. I think we did a tiger out of octopus though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> tiger quota in the Bond franchise. Uh, yeah, I want to quickly before we go into the rating, quickly just touch on a couple of this minor characters. We obviously had returning Jack Wade. Um, is this his last film, Gordon? Does he have another piece in the next film? No, it was just it was just the two. Yeah, I didn't I didn't really find he was too well used in this film. There was uh, yeah, part of the, the was, good chemistry was, between him yeah. and Brosnan and Goldeneye was how. Um, he was a bit antagonistic towards Bond at first, and that built up the chemistry. Whereas he's just he's just that kind of guy guffawing in the background. And in, in this, it's not it doesn't do much for me in this film. Um, man, I always say I love Bond and seeing Bond in his his navy outfit. That was quite a cool touch and bringing back his roots. Like, and because we saw it in Spy Who Loved Me, you only live twice. Because because that that's uh, why Bond's commander at the end of the day. It was that was good. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like the, there's a very subtle look Pierce Brosnan gives Jack Wade after he's sort of given the information to that other character and the other guy is doing whatever it is. So it's just that they're standing at attention and Brosnan just very slightly glances at Wade's like colourful shirt and he sort of sighs or something like that. It was just a very tiny moment. It was a character moment, obviously, it just disapproves of the casual wear of Jack Wade. Um, but yeah, other than that, Jack Wade kind of annoyed me. I found him... Ugh. Dumb and irritating. Uh, hey, Jimbo! Uh, yeah. Oh, he's, he's irritating as hell on this. Sounds yeah. a bit like modern CIA, to be honest. I mean, yeah. you know, they're. Uh, I mean, I don't know what portrayal, other portrayals you could pull into this, but I was thinking about things like Narcos that I was watching, where you saw the CIA in the seventies and eighties and things like that, and they're very much like that. You know, I, yeah. I think the, the kind of Hawaiian shirt wearing, arrogant, like irresponsible thing is definitely that's a, an 80s 
seventy late seventies into the eighties and nineties CIA image, you know. Yeah, uh, it was the line that um, I it didn't. The joke didn't work. <laughs> like it was something like, uh, you know, if you do this, pull this cord or whatever, you'll die of asphyxiation or something like that. And he says, "That's like my ex-wife or something like that." My last, my first marriage. My sounds, sounds like my marriage. He says, "Yeah, yeah." I was like, <laughs> like the other characters, they didn't really react. But one kind of half smirked, just like terrible joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. unfortunately that distracts you momentarily before what's an amazing stunt by uh, the same guy who did the jump from the Eiffel Tower and a view to kill and the, the same guy who did a lot of the aerial stunts EJ Worth um, simulated Bond jumping out of this cargo plane must have been thousands of feet in the air that you know the, the shots were great again real stunt we're getting towards we're now in a 97 getting towards an era where the model work's starting to disappear the real Stunts are starting to disappear and CGI is starting to creep in. So there was there was great stunts. The same also the um, the motorbike going over the the helicopter in Saigon, which was actually filmed in Thailand. That was a pretty good stunt. Uh, there was some great model work as well, and like I said, top special effects again. I thought the the motorbike scene was probably my favourite. I thought it was a fantastic action set piece. The moment the helicopter sort of like veered downwards to try and essentially murder anyone who was getting in the way of those blades, I thought that was terrifying. It was a great action set piece. I haven't seen anything like that. It was cool. It reminded me of what we used to do in Grand Theft Auto 4 online. <laughs> yeah, actually. Yeah. Steve, Steve Barry, we used to go in there and terrorise other players. Like we'd, You could clip them with your blades and send them off flying hundreds of in the air. It was good. So, yeah, I, lo- I loved that. That whole section was fantastic. And that had great character moments, like Steve talked about, with the interplay between Waylon and Bond. Uh, so there was a lot going on there in that whole section. Exhilarating. Um, as well as that, you had a scene with the two of them. I mean, I don't know what they were thinking. And it was amazing they were able to pull that off. Sliding down a high story building using a poster uh, while they're handcuffed, hanging in midair and able to kick through the window. I mean, it was insane, crazy. A lot of leap, yeah, a lot of leap, leap of faith that they, they they jumped through a window. I don't even if they knew there was a second floor there for them to land on that was going to be within a safe distance. It was all like, oh, that was a bit, that was lucky. I liked later on a smaller thing which is hard to notice. Whale in on the stealth ship throws it's one of those little ninja stars. It was a, I think, a throwback to You Only Live Twice. That was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one more okay. low key, obviously. Yeah. Um, you know, as we said, she was fantastic and the action was great. Okay, is there anything else you guys want to cover before we get to the rating? Yep. Just on minor characters, I thought it was a particularly interesting M in this film because for the last 17 films, we've seen M basically almost disliking Bond, their sort of, exa- sort of exasperation from M. But throughout this film, M was actually very, very defensive, almost yeah. of Bond, very protective. And she you seems know, genuinely worried for him you know and what, I, sort of genuinely pleased for him. And that felt weird coming from <laughs> M, having seen her from the last, or having seen that character, I should say, through yeah. all the previous films. It was a bit of a departure. I picked yep. up on that as well. It was, uh, I, I think it uh, actually, something must have happened there in that relationship because Bond actually did do the right thing at the start. So obviously M was fighting against the Admiralty and the military men who were wanting to just blow everything up. Bond actually stopped a disaster. So I think you can kind of infer that there's a trust that's been developed there between the two of them. 
their, yeah. yeah, their relationship grows over the next few films. I think Goldeneye is probably as cold as in that first meeting they have. If I remember correctly, they that trust and cordial relationship starts to become more obvious in the next few films. And then it even goes on into the um, Daniel, Daniel Craig, Craig era. Yeah, yeah. I thought tell, the... like, there's a massive arc there with Bond and M, actually, that starts from Goldeneye and, and goes right up to um, Skyfall, yeah. is it? Mm-hmm. Which yeah. is great. I, I think that's great. The pre-title sequence was really well done, this film. Maybe one of the best ones in the series. I love the fact you, you couldn't see Bond for a lot of it. It was the first appearance of Robinson as well, obviously one of Bond's allies at MI6, and you can tell he's communicating with Bond through the earpiece. And it's the fact you don't see Bond, but you know Robinson's talking to him. And then it's got this nice reveal when Brosnan hooks the guy and he goes, filthy habit, you know, the guy's smoking. And and it's the fact Bond's got the foresight to get the, I think they're to nuclear missiles to get them out of there rather than just escaping and the yeah i, I really liked him and the the um the arguing between her and the admiral the admiral actually is it jeffrey palmer <laughs> he was actually judy dench's co-star in the sitcom as time goes by and they're two argumentative people like a, a couple which i thought was kind of interesting I thought I recognised him. That's probably what I recognised him from. He's been in a few British sitcoms, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was, I, I struggled. I was like, I definitely have seen... There was a few faces popped up, but I was like, I recognised... I mean, Gerard Butler <laughs> yeah. had a tiny role in this. Hugh Bonneville was in there, in the uh, on board the, the Navy ship. Oh, that's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a lot of... Uh, British faces popped up. I think Gerard Butler got one line that was like a very Scottish sounding line. There was one Scottish guy on that. <laughs> Captain! <laughs> Captain! Well, that was going to degrees down by the stern. <laughs> okay. Uh, take it, Captain. <laughs> he sounds like Scotty. <laughs> right, okay. Is there anything else before we get on to the rating? No, I. but honestly, like, I'm ready. Okay. I'm ready to do it. All right, then. Gordon, we'll start with you. Rating time. Yep. Let's give it a three and a half. Virgin and yep. a four. I find I still find it a really enjoyable film. I think Brosnan's really good. He's, he's maybe better in the role in this than he is in Goldeneye, potentially. I think he's get he's getting a bit more Moore-esque with his his kind of confidence, suave demeanour, his mannerisms. I just even some of his looks are great. The looks he gives Q, the looks he gives Carver in the, the conference. I mean, that first third of the film, especially the, the Hamburg conference, is really well written, I think. And as soon as Bond leaves Hamburg, I feel that's when the film goes downhill a bit. So, like a lot of films, I prefer Bond when he's being sneaky and doing undercover stuff. I love him infiltrating the uh, the big warehouse. This uh, The big satellite is worth $30 million. Gupta says and Bond just knocks it crashing to the floor. I love that. It's just... And yeah, like I said, just brilliant music. Uh, there's real classic double touches. Even when he's sitting in the hotel room waiting for, for Paris to come in, he's got a drink. He's got he's still got part of like the tuxedo on. It's it's that's real classic Bond, and it's it's harking back to like when Bond's waiting for Professor Dent to come in the room and Doctor No, the whole um, you've had your six. <laughs> it's kind of like that. Just things like some of the fighting scenes. Um, are good like the guards in the warehouse classic bond again the halo jump out of the plane um a, a woman 
as sad as it was, how many women have died in Bond's hands, like Paris, you know, how many women have died because of Bond. Uh, I love seeing Bond speaking different languages. It's It's got a lot of classic Bond in it. And like I said, man, I think it's the the latter part of the film that becomes a bit too much bang, bang. The the story is a bit far-fetched, really, you know, the the whole stealth ship thing and World War Three getting into fancy land a bit. I feel, um, I thought, like I said, I, I do like Wei Lin as a character. And I thought, I love, it's almost similar to like with Holly Goodhead and Triple X. It's it's another agent who's just as capable as Bond, if not better in certain situations. You can tell early on that she senses Bond's an agent before it's confirmed. Uh, but I, I, I honestly feel there's a real severe lack of chemistry between her and Bond in this. I think when the likes of when they have that look between them and the, the safe house, it, it seems kind of awkward to me, a bit strained again when they're on the boat. Later on, Bond says, like, you're uh, working with a decadent agent and all that stuff. It feels very forced to me, as much as I like her. Um, I think the other, like I said earlier, the um, certain characters, there could be a bit more backstory. The And what a huge um, error not using Surrender as the title song. It's such a good classic Bond song. But that would have worked so well. But overall, yeah, um, kind of getting towards middle-of-the-road territory, but enjoyable i'm starting to think when i was talking about what uh, tomorrow uh, the world's not enough i think i'm starting to think i might be swaying more towards the world's not enough is my number two brosen spot but we'll see what next week brings or whenever we're doing it okay so three and a half from gordon fran you want to go next you know it's interesting because there's, there's certain parts of what gordon says i agree with on completely um, I would say the only thing, obviously, I, I I felt there was quite a good chemistry between Michelle Yeoh and Brosnan there and the characters. Um, I felt that, I don't know, I mean, there was, I feel like I've obviously, I've made my criticisms earlier on, do you know what I mean? Like, I've, in terms of what I felt about certain aspects of the writing, things that could have been characters that could have had a bit more screen time and, you know, the ludicrousness of the, the plot in some ways. But I would say that, if I was, if it wasn't for Michelle Yeoh, I would give it a three. But because of her entire presence in this film and that character, I'd give it a four. Okay, that's what that's the way I feel about the film. And yep. I, and, and I would sum it up by saying that um, this film for me is watchable as an enjoyable Bond film. You know, you can watch a Bond film, pick them out the the catalogue and watch them. But for me, I, I would I would pick this one out the catalogue of films to watch because of, of that character, not Bond. Yep, okay. So that's my sum up of the film. Excellent. Four stars from Fran. Steve? I, similar to Gordon, I'm going three and a half on this one. It was ridiculous but it was too much fun to mark down too much and similar to Gordon, I don't know to what extent that is because of my memories of the film and the fact that I've seen it before and I've, I've enjoyed myself prior. Um, but I, I loved Wei Lin as a character I've said was the absolute star of this film she was fantastic I loved a lot of the action scenes a lot of the fight scenes the, the motorbike is fantastic that whole section is just brilliant and on the music the use of the Bond theme itself two or three times throughout the film I thought worked beautifully but you can't take away from the fact that the dialogue was lazy in parts it was extremely labored in parts 
And some of it was just downright cheesy, the amount of one-liners. It was just bang, 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 one after the other. And it kind of got too much. The slapstick, particularly, the everything from the um, the fight scene in the soundproof room, where there was a cello, I think, thrown at one point, <laughs> up to the, the scenes in Waylon's apartment where... Bond was mucking about with stuff and that dragon suddenly breathed fire and pins flew out the fan. Um, the entire BMW, see, just the, the amount of sort of ridiculous slapstick felt a bit <laughs> sort of stupid. And the, the, the fact that the entire film came down to the whole idea that Carver was planning an entire war based on the fact he hadn't been granted broadcasting rights in the country just utterly floors me. As a, as a plot device, I thought, really? That's, I don't know if that's particularly weak or utterly genius. Yeah. But I had too much fun watching it to take too much away from it. So for that, I'm giving it three and a half. Yeah, uh, fair point. That is uh, uh, well well summed up. I, uh, I'm swaying. I am struggling to decide. I'm either between 3.5 or 4, and I'm actually thinking of going 4. The action set pieces were the main draw for me, as well as Michelle Yeoh, uh, and the chemistry um, that I feel that was brought, sort of repressed, as we've said over the film. Um, I like the, the, the writing around her, and it's a shame the villains didn't... I don't think I think the villains are actually some of the weak points about this film. And the last film, Goldeneye, I I spoke very highly about my love for the villains, all main villains. Um, I thought were fantastic. I love ensemble type. You've got Urimov and things like that all together. And and this film for me, Stamper is generic. He is a he's like a carbon copy um, of you know Red Grant from from Russia with Love. Um, you know, it, you you give a tough guy blonde hair, it's almost a cliche look now for a Bond villain. Yeah, um, but he didn't he didn't bring anything else other than the odd. Yeah, just he was super powered. Is that it? Yeah, it's not really interesting. It's he was a bit really of a multitasker. He did a lot of odd jobs for Carver. Yeah, uh, yeah, odd job too. I just uh, I don't know. I just it didn't. It's funny because I remember liking him when I was a child, but it just shows you the difference when you're older and you can see that uh, he's not really that interested. Carver, uh, I think, I can't remember who brought it up. Was it you, Fran? That some backstory to him would be a bit, a bit more backstory would have made him more interesting villain. As he is, it's just it's this crazy plot. Mad. So, not to go over it all, um, the villains let it down for me and the, f- the thrilling action and the chemistry with Michelle Yeoh is what gives it a four. Uh, so it's just a four. It scrapes that four. It is the lower ranked of four films, but I would still give it a four. I feel that I enjoyed it too much. I had too much fun with a lot of it um, to give it a three. So, yeah, four stars for me. And That's- it's very... Sorry, on you go, mate. No, I was just going to say, actually, I haven't, I haven't spoken about Pierce Brosnan himself. There was so many, there was a lot of moments where I was just enjoying watching Pierce Brosnan as Bond. I actually did like him. Um, I think his style, I love. So I think there's an element of my childhood watching this film, com- com- I think has elevated that score a little as well. Um, I, I would deny that that might be playing a part in it. Maybe if this is the first time ever watching this film and not growing up around that time when it came out. I probably we might have given it the three, but there's a personal bias that's kicked in to elevate it slightly to the four. Sorry, Gordon, what were you going to say? Well, just that style of ending we saw in Tomorrow Never Dies, I wonder if we'll get that again. Bond in the middle of the sea. Um, he's, his people and her people are looking for them, and he's like, no, let's stay undercover. It's like out in the, the sea 
with a woman. <laughs> it's like the end of You Only Live Twice. He's in the he's in a dinghy, isn't he? And then um, submarine rises up, and you've got the likes of Goldfinger. You know, he's with Pussy Galore um, next to the parachute. I wonder if we'll ever get that sort of because it, it almost even even with Natalia and Goldeneye when he's he's lying in the hay with her. It's kind of the classic Bond ending. I wonder if he'll he'll ever get that again. As someone who actually is struggling to remember, I know you will. I take it we do get that. Well, you'll we'll never know. I mean, you you don't kind know. Kind of, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I think this film. There's so many. We've we've listed so many films in talking about this film that you can tell that it is a film that, as much as it's got a sort of futuristic feel and it's talking about stuff that is more prescient now, but it's that sort of digital and mass media age. It, the style of the film, it harks back to every single previous Bond film prior Moonraker. Well, I guess I guess at this point, it's just waiting to see what's going to come next, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Okay, we are done with Tomorrow Never Dies. I would say we overall thought it was a decent film. Flawed, certainly. No doubt about that. But overall, still an enjoyable uh, film. Um, so yeah, that's Tomorrow Never Dies. Yeah, I was going to say... There, there may be some people who are so dedicated they've listened to this thing right through to the very end. They've actually listened to the entire cast. And we will find out with our analytics. Well, that's it, yeah. I mean, those people are the ones we want to remind, don't we? Like, just to come back and tell us yep. what they think, you know? We'll sit in our rooms full of our, all our CCTV monitors to find <laughs> out when people are tuning in and tuning out and all that. Yep. This, uh, obviously, Capiche uh, film cast. This is the Bond Daft Project. Like us. Uh, we've got the Twitter. We're on the, the website, capiche.online. Search for it. And yeah, we are all there. Log in, create your profile, start leaving, uh, you know, there's the forums, the comments, things like that. Check out all the articles that are up there. There's lots to, to see that we've got already. And it's going to, yeah, we're going to keep doing that. Um, and of course, other uh, podcast players. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcast, SoundCloud, other main ones, but most other ones, whatever you use, you, we might be there. Okay, we are done. Uh, we're going to now go and we'll be back hopefully next week. Steve, how's your schedule looking for, for next week? Uh, I'm free next weekend, so we can do a week today. Actually, I'll, I'll need to see a certain big birthdays coming up for uh, a certain someone. And so maybe I'm not, depending on how hungover I am on Sunday, we'll see. So it might be me that's having to push it off another week, but I'll let you know. Uh, yeah, we'll get it scheduled in. We'll be back for... The World Is Not Enough, Brosnan's third Bond film. I'm looking forward to this, guys. Uh, Robert Carlyle is a Bond villain. Surely it's, it's got to be a five-star film, right? It's going to be good. Yeah, yeah. Okie dokie, guys. Thanks for joining me once again. We will return next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye-bye. <laughs> Thank you.